This week on the Sport Blokes. This week we chat to NBL legend Alex Loughton about his career from the Wanneroo Wolves to the Cairns Taipans with stops in between, his Taipans all-time five, and Nathan stuffs up a stat like a pro. Oh, it's true, it's true. Lots of NBL stuff. So good. Let's go. Well, we're absolutely delighted to have our next guest on, aren't we, Stewie? Not only is he a member of the Gryffindors in Kansas' A-grade Monday night basketball competition, which is said to draw tens of spectators, he also once took a forfer, opening the ah. bowling for St. Stephen's in 1998 in interschool dual pitch cricket at an away game at Chisholm, where I took three for at the other end. Sorry, when you've been ah. on the show three times already, I have to be creative with the introduction. I did mention that for reasons which will become apparent soon. But in all seriousness, he started all but four of his 124 games at Old Dominion University, where he was not only an academic All-American, but also once dropped a 40 on Charlotte before trying his hand at the NBA Summer League and Europe for a very successful career here in the NBL, where he played 311 games with Perth and Cairns, not to mention some boomers representation in there too. A very special sport blokes welcome to Alex Loughton. Hey, g'day guys. Very, very good. Uh, very entertaining. I did open the bowling. I do remember that. Uh, you missed one thing. It was 45 points, not 40, but that's 45, okay. was it? Oh, wow. I'm it sorry. Double I overtime against Double overtime against UNC Charlotte, December 2000 and uh, whatever, three or four. I'm giving that's him terrible. Giving He's him giving a, me the look. I'm giving yeah. him a death stare like, how dare you not check that? <laughs> <laughs> now we will we will get there so you actually remember that match against Chisholm Al? oh uh, no it's Chisholm no I don't I, I do remember playing a bit of cricket but the actual details a bit hazy but I, I do uh did enjoy the old school sport this is this is obviously the truth of it because my athletic peak is stuff that you've forgotten <laughs> which was year 10 probably <laughs> which is year 10 yeah. basically yeah. so it's like you know being able to dunk a tennis ball and taking a three for because that was dual pitch cricket where you bowled in tandems of four overs. So you bowled two overs each at each end. Yeah. And, and yeah. if someone got out, they didn't walk. Yeah. They batted the full four overs and it was minus five oh, runs. Indoor cricket rules. Oh. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this 25 years ago? Is this what we're... Yeah, this is yeah. 1998. Yeah, yeah. So you took, quarter... a four for, you took a four yeah. for at one end and I took a three for at the other end off a really long run, <laughs> even though I could generate no pace at all. <laughs> <laughs> what a classic. Uh. <laughs> Let's start there, mate. How how did you get into sport? And and we know that you have incredible genetics and a lot of tall siblings. Was basketball the be all and end all, or did you kind of try your hand? And obviously, I've mentioned the cricket there, but did you try your hand at a few different sports, or was basketball kind of always going to be the calling? I started t ball uh, in year you know year one, and that was the my first sort of team sport. I love I love t ball and baseball. That was great. I, I just it, it was uh, just perfect as a kid. You know, out in the and the grass out in the sun, love the smell of the mitt. I still love watching baseball today. Uh, but basketball, I started playing in year two, and I was taller than my year two teacher. Shout out to Mrs. Edmonds, who was, I found out later, four foot three. She's a she's a wee Scottish lady, and I was taller than my year two teacher, but she was <laughs> tiny. So I was I was always the back centre for the class photos. So I was tall and skinny. Um, so I did start in year two. I did a lot of sort of t-ball and baseball, but basketball was just every season. There was no off-season like, you know, AFL plays in the winter and then doesn't play in the summer. It was basketball, again, basketball, basketball. So it just kept ticking over and, and it was fun uh, and just kind of grew from there. Nothing serious happened until under-16s in terms of state representation, uh, maybe under-14s. After club, you've got the rep rep sort of hoops, which is you're playing Bunbury and Geraldton and 
those ones with the Wannery Wolves. So that's called rep, the Rep Basketball, uh, representative of that club. So that was under 14. So I guess maybe it started to get a bit serious there, but the real serious stuff happened from under 16 onwards, where you're making those sort of training camps and, and things with the West Australia Institute of Sport sort of programs. So that's when that, that started to kick off. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I might be, because I've already got your career high in college wrong. But I, I vaguely remember reading in the local rag way back in the day in the Wanneroo Times that you dunked on James Crawford in like a practice match or something. Uh, we, we did a, a promotion uh, sort of game, I think. I think it was off the one foot, just reaching as high as I could. You know, you could give and take a little bit from those games. But um, yeah, there was there was one there, I think, like I, 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 it was it was clean, but it wasn't like crazy impressive, you know, cocking it back and throwing down the hammer. One thing with JC, though, he came to my school at East Swanaroo Primary School and he ran the clinic with the kids, right? And I was well known for launching half-court bombs every lunchtime just during normal school. But at the end of this clinic, he called for one person to shoot the half-court shot. And everyone's like, oh, pointing to your Alex, Alex, you know? And I was like, yeah, sweet, that's me. Like, I've this is this is your moment, Laos. Like, I've been training <laughs> been training for this every, every lunchtime, just heaving it. Anyway, at the half court line, threw like a bit of a hook sort of shot over the over the shoulder, and mate, it was straight as an arrow. It went straight in, and he had to run. James Crawford had to run a penalty suicide uh, after I got it in because that was the deal. Uh, and then he ran it. He, he short changed it actually, and then he grabbed me in the headlock and gave it crusty in the hair. Um, <laughs> so it was like the best day ever. And then from then on, I was like, mate. I'm going to be, uh, this is what I want to do, you know, play, play some hoops, play for the NBL, um, be like James Crawford. So that was probably my memory from year five back at uh, primary school. That was uh, just life-changing for me uh, and and a lot of fun. One of the things I remember playing, so obviously we first crossed your path in year eight in high school. And one of the things that I marveled at is, holy shit, this is the tallest guy in our year and he probably has the best point guard skills. Yes. Like, I couldn't believe how good your handle was and your decision-making and your vision. Like, was that kind of drilled into you? We know you were tall from a young age. So I know often players have this growth spurt and they start as a guard and then finish as a centre because they have a growth spurt. But I don't know, was that the case for you or or you just were really well drilled and really skilled? Well, I didn't feel like I had point guard type skills based on some of the teams that we were playing. So maybe, I mean, maybe all the the talent that I was up against I still felt like I wasn't on that level with a good handle but I was always tall and skinny and head and shoulders above everyone else so I remember year eight I was about six foot one you know that was tall for for year eight um and then sort of stayed up there I think by year 10 I was about six foot eight so I mean the handle I didn't like I said I didn't feel like I had point guard skills but maybe playing against a lot of that competition you you got to pick up some skills (laughs) um but uh no it was I always enjoyed, we play a lot, so those handles would rub off a bit. Yeah, and certainly on top of that, one of the things that I noticed was the the form on the jump shot. You know, a lot of us in year eight weren't particularly strong. I'm not ashamed to admit in year eight, I was still a two-hand shooter. I, I still hadn't developed the strength to shoot one-handed. Whereas, yeah, you know, watching you play, obviously there was a lot of that that upper body strength and you were able to, you know, have that, that silky touch for a, for a tall guy. So, yeah, definitely well, uh, what- a, a very, very skilled player at that age. That's funny. If you're looking at the shot going, gee, that, that's not a bad shot. I was looking at uh, when you would, would run up the wall, you'd able to like leap off one foot, <laughs> grab the wall and get yourself up high and then slam it down. I was like, mate, that's pretty athletic there. You've been able to run up the wall, jump and then twist and dunk. I was like, mate, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. We used to love so, that. Uh, <laughs> well, two, two, two things on that. So 
in I think it was year eleven or year twelve because we we would be doing this in the shoes that we were wearing at school, which were like the the, the, black, the, the black dress, leather the dress yeah. shoes. Yeah. So year yeah. eleven, I think I broke Impressive. a backboard uh, yeah. in our gym, <laughs> so I basically dunked it too hard and fractured the wood right. in the backboard. Right. Uh, and then two years out of high school, I was doing the same thing at one of the gyms at Padbury, and just before I got to the wall, I put my foot into a puddle and went just <laughs> full tilt straight into the wall and broke my knee. Oh. So it's oh, mixed results. Mixed results. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> One of the skills is going to carry through either the shooting touch myself or jumping off the wall and dunking it from your side of things. So I obviously, maybe the shooting skill was the one that was going to take either of us through to our career. Absolutely. Put it this way it's as close to dunking a ball as I ever got. <laughs> but we would play every lunchtime. Like uh, you think about high school, we, we were the first, as soon as that bell rang, like we were on the courts playing. like full court games just until the the bell sounded at the other end so that sort of environment fuels your competitive spirit and your you, your drive to kind of always be better because you want to come back to the playground right you want to rattle the cage of those games and take some names and get some wins it's such a good sort of breeding ground for like you know, no refs you know like it's just <laughs> it's just uh o'doyle rules uh, so it's a pretty cool environment that we that we're able to do in high school Lots of fond memories, lots of fond yes. memories. So with, I guess, WACE and then the Australian Institute of Sport, so h- how does that all work? Did they kind of headhunt you or recruit you, I guess? So when you play your rep basketball, so I was representing Wannery Wolves. Obviously, there's club level where the games are played at Wannery Wolves, and that's that's the club sort of land. Once you then represent that uh, Wannery Wolves sort of uh, as a club, then you're playing those other teams, like I said, Bunbury, got Geraldton, you know, that, that whole circuit. From there, those kids that were showing some promise made that WA sort of intensive training camp thing. And that was 5 a.m. mornings, um, a couple mornings a week for a while there where dad would drive me to Perry Lakes at 5 a.m. We'd go to 6.30 and then I'd have a shower and swing past McDonald's on the way to St. Stephen's for like sort of 7.30 start. So we had some early mornings and some disciplined trainings and things. And from there, um, then the, the state team selections were happening and I made that. Um, for under 16s uh, at the top age and then from there the state teams obviously play in the nationals so under 16s wasn't great but then under 18s I was there as a second year player or two-year player like a younger age group uh, I didn't play much but then we won the gold medal which was great but I didn't contribute much and then the the year after that which was year 12 that was the year that it took off because we won the grand final we got the gold medal I was playing big minutes and then in the grand final game I had uh, 19 points and 28 rebounds hey. and from that kind of game where you just you're just on song you're everywhere like I, I vacuumed in just about every board got putbacks fouled I had uh, 18 rebounds at halftime <laughs> so from there the, the coaches at the Australian Institute of Sport were watching going uh, I want this kid on the AIS team the Australian Institute of Sport team which is another intensive training for you know a national level and that's obviously the, the the Olympic sort of training ground as well for a lot of different sports um, in Canberra. Um, so I made that team um, to for 2001. So after selected in, in 2000 in our year 12 year um, and had a few camps and things as well. But then in 2001, it's you're moving into an apartment in Canberra, moving out of home, and then you've got training every day, most most days, and, and a and a stronger strength program, and then all of the uh, recovery. Uh, what would you call it? technology and, and um, staff uh, at your disposal? 
so it's really it really elevates um your your, your level uh and that that takes off pretty quick from there i was only there a year um and then from that i actually was looking to college um, and i did come back to the wildcats for a training for about f- uh, five or six months before going to college in the in the states and so that was sort of the I guess the progression, you, you got to kind of keep hitting checkpoints. You got to keep sort of trying to evolve and listen to coaches and have good showings at those nationals when you represent WA, because that's, that's where all the selectors are really looking. Can, can this kid or can this player perform at this level? And the, the cream, I guess, rises to the top. And then those, those ones are going to get the selection for further on, you know? So any names we might or our listeners might know, I guess anyone you roommated with or any of your contemporaries back in those early days? Um, well, I mean, a lot of the names that came out of AAS were, uh, you know, their, their household names now. So right after I came through, obviously, Paddy Mills, all those types of guys, the, the first ones to go through the AAS uh, were Luke Longley, Andrew Vlahoff, all these names that sort of we grew up or seeing at the cat, the Wildcats, for instance, I found out later they came through the AIS at a younger age and no one ever, I'd never heard of the AIS really before year 11 or year 12, you know, so, so you, you look at the history of all these guys and, and there's so Andrew Bogart was coming in at the end of 2001. So at the end of our year, we went to the States uh, to travel and do our tour. And so we brought in a couple of other young kids with us. And one was Andrew Bogart, the other was Damien Martin. And um, we're like, oh, these guys are probably the next generation, you know, coming through. Um, but everyone that pretty much comes through uh, household names from the NBL side of things um, and, and had done sort of, you know, big things. So, um, you know, the whole list, you'd be able to recognize uh, a heap more. But Joe Ingalls and all those guys come through pretty much. And that's changed a bit since then. So so now it's the Australian Institute of Sport has teamed up with the NBA Global Academy. So you've got these international athletes training with the Australian Center of Excellence. It's just slightly changed um but you've got these two academies running side by side but the information is shared amongst mba scouts and all that stuff now because it's the mba global academy and the center of excellence and all of those big names that you'll see dante exum have come through these kind of programs um josh giddy uh, uh all that sort of stuff so um it's a pretty good platform for players to excel and grow uh, and get the coaching and also get the exposure now. So they're getting call-ups to participate in, um, you know, those Nike camps or, or Basketball Without Borders camps and things where international camps where the best players come together as well. So there's all these all these opportunities now that weren't really there before, but it's been building. It, it has been building and, and the, you know, the digital age of sharing that information, having everything you need at your fingertips, player stats, um, you know, uh, their their biological makeups, everything like that, it's all heavily documented and heavily recorded and progress is, is recorded and NBA teams have got someone on it. NBA teams are looking and they have a whole list of players that are pro, uh, potential candidates. And so obviously you, you talk about the time over in America, that's ultimately where the next step was. You you did your, your four years at ODU, which was very, very successful, a career-high 45, I believe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This but, just in. But, now, obviously, we know a little bit about your time there. Would love to know, I guess, if, yeah, any stories that you had. How you even came to choose Old Dominion? Well, yes, the well. recruitment. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting process that we maybe don't get much of a, I guess, a insight. backstory mm. or, or an insight on. So yeah, yeah run us through yeah. that. Yeah. So 
Um, I had that. So I finished at AIS in Canberra in 2001. And at the end of the year, we did our tour to the US, um, which we got exposed to a few colleges over there. Uh, and I had some some mid-level sort of colleges uh, keen. Then I came back to Australia and I was training with the Wildcats for six months. During that time, uh, Luke Longley was involved with the Wildcats and we got chatting and sort of hung out a bit. Uh, we even played a, a round of golf down at Frio and uh, I had we were on this par three uh, hole and I had an exploding golf ball that I was dying to use. I, I, it was a prank ball that I had in my, my pocket uh, with my golf kit. And I just saw the opportunity. So it was a par three. And I said to Luke, I bet you can't make it onto the green from if you if you make it onto the green, I'll give you 50 bucks. And he's like, are you sure you want to take that bet? And I was like, <laughs> mate, like uh, 100 percent. mate. If you can get it, 50 bucks is all yours. He goes, all right. All right. And then he lined up to hit it. And I was like, oh, wait, wait. I don't want to I don't want any excuses. You know, and I kind of knelt down with one knee and I, I hid the ball like I obscured the vision of his ball. As I knelt down on one end, like a lunge and cleared the, the leaves and the debris. And as I did that, I swapped the ball out with my right hand uh, where he couldn't see. And um, I put it back on the tee and then kind of brushed it. I was like, all right, then, mate, no excuses. And he's like, oh, yeah, what are you doing, Loughton? You know, like, just let me hit it sort of thing. And I was like, all right, here we go. And then the breeze picked up in coming towards his face. And I was like, oh, no, this is going to be perfect. And he, he smashed it. It just exploded in like the flower powder or whatever. And it just coated him as well as the breeze. He's like, oh, you bastard. <laughs> I was like, no. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I just got Luke along with the exploding prank golf ball. I was like, this is going to be the best day ever. And he, he was, and, uh, he goes, um, uh, you know, what college, What do you think about college? You know, because obviously he was at um, University of New Mexico and had a great career from that and, you know, into the NBA. And he had a contact at Old Dominion University, a guy named Larry Kostoviak, who also played in the NBA with him at the oh, yeah. Chicago Bulls. Chicago, Orlando. Yeah. Yeah. Played with Milwaukee as well. Yeah. Yeah. Really yep. well. Yeah. yeah, he was a big name at Milwaukee. He hurt his knee. But the year that Jordan went to uh, baseball, Larry went to Chicago Bulls. And he was only there one year, but those two hit it off as good mates. And uh, so that, that, they were best, best buddies. Anyway, so Larry was at Old Dominion as a, an assistant coach. Uh, and Luke was back in Perth and they'd always kept in touch. But Luke said, look, why don't you go see Larry at Old Dominion and just see? Uh, and I'm like, mate, this guy, Larry Kostovic, he's six foot nine, played in the NBA. How awesome would that have a, as an assistant coach at the college I go to to get experience from? And then they also had a guy named Kenny Gaddison, another six foot ten. Oh, yeah. Charlotte Hornets. Charlotte Hornets yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Kenny was there and Larry Christovic, Um, And then they had the you know head coach Blaine Taylor and, um, you know, guy that had college experience. So they changed the program around a bit. These two guys were there. I'm like, mate, this is pretty good. Like I went over for the official visit with dad and we, you know, we weighed up four different schools. The other three were sort of on the West Coast, San Diego and, and Loyola Marymount in LA where Damien Martin ended up going. And yeah, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And uh, UC Irvine as well. But Old Dominion stood out because of the coaches. And so I... We, I was like, right, let's do that. So it was um, summer school in August or July, you know, land with a freshman class, just sort of bright-eyed, kind of bushy tail, ready to, to get at it. And within the first week, Larry had had enough of the head coach and resigned. I was oh. like, oh, no. I was like, oh, I still got Kenny Gaddison, um, you know. And then in, a year after that, Kenny resigned. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so anyway, it, the decision to get to college was was sort of those coaches but then, you know, a little bit of adversity where those two guys leave. Um, so what do I do after the 
after the first year, I had a great first year. Um, do I stay? Do I see it out? Um, and we, we ultimately decided, yeah, um, we, we we're going to make something of it. So um, it's sort of like it happens a lot where people go, oh, no, this situation's not right for me. I'm going to leave. Um, I'm out, you know, go somewhere else. But we I spoke to dad about it and we looked at it and we're like, ah, you know what? We chose this this school because it was at a level where I thought I was going to play decent minutes. I actually had a contact with the University of Alabama, the Crimson Tide. And this is like a predominantly like super athletic league. It just wasn't quite the right fit for me, but they were keen. And it's just too big a school, I think, to to really know that I could play. So I chose a school that was a little bit less level that I knew that I could play meaningful minutes. And I think college kids make a bit of a wrong decision sometimes. They go, oh, sweet. I'm going to go to the biggest school, you know, and you know, sitting on the bench for four years. You don't learn anything with that. Like I'd rather not have the cool pair of shorts from UNC uh, Tar Heels or UConn or something and know, and be at a lesser school but play more minutes. you got to play more minutes. That's where the experience is at. So I was at Old Dominion. It's sort of, you know, probably out of the 330 Division One schools at the time, it was somewhere around that 100 to 80 mark, you know, so starting to get to mid, mid-major, mid-level but man, I, I started as a freshman. I started our first game was actually out of conference against UNC, which was awesome against the Tar Heels. Our second, our second season, my second year, my sophomore year, the first game was at UNC I, it, with 20,000 people with Roy Williams first game as head coach and his crew of three or four guys went to um, uh, NBA. It's an unreal, it's a surreal experience. Um, and I just felt like Alderman was a great spot. Um, and once my two coaches that were former NBA players, a bigs, once they'd left and I had to make a decision, we said, right, if we're going to stay and we're going to make this decision, we're going to make it, we're going to make it work. I'm going to, you know, we'll work with coach. We'll work with everyone. We'll give it our absolute best crack. We won't just sulk and go, oh, well, poor me, um, you know, all that. So we made it happen. And then in our third year, we won the conference championship. And then the fourth year, we didn't make it through to the big dance. But we got to like an NIT tournament and played in Madison Square Gardens. Um, so, you know, we had we had some really good success and we, it was building. Like we, we had to build a program. And the years that followed me, they had even more success because they were able to be humming along. They were already in sync. So, yeah, it, it was an awesome experience. It came with its challenges. But I think that sort of battle hardened me for what lay ahead after after college. I'm just having a look at that UNC team. There's some incredible names on there, like Raymond Felton, Rashawn yeah, McCann, Felton. Sean yeah. Mayer. What was that the year they won? You that might have been the year they Sean... won. No, nah, uh, the second year. The second year, I think, yeah, did uh, did they? they? They might have. Roy Williams' first year, yeah. What was that? 2000 and, um, 2002 to 2003. So 2003 to 2004. Who won Who won it that year? I'm not sure. but well, Maybe they were only a Final Four team. But uh, they were very they, they successful. Were, they were up. That's incredible. Felt these guys are so massive. Like they, they were just so much bigger. Sean May wasn't that tall, but he, you know, he, he had a bit. He was of a, a solid there. unit. Yeah, yeah he's, he's yeah. one one of those guys that he was, was a, a beast in college. Didn't work out in the NBA, but he was an nah. incredible college player. Yeah, yeah. So Al, you've already touched on some really, no doubt, great memories playing at the Garden, playing in the tournament. We've got to ask you about this 45-point game. Now, I actually remember watching, I remember lying on the couch watching Sports Center one afternoon because I was a uni student, you know, just at home. Like, Alex Lawton 
Lawton drops a 40 piece. It was Charlotte, wasn't it? I got that right, didn't yeah. I? It was it was UNC Charlotte, which is now just called Charlotte. Right, right. So tell us about that one. That must have been incredible. Yeah, so I mean they were from Conference USA at the time. It was an out of conference game. Uh so it was, you know, before before January one. We sort of hit our our stride a bit and I was putting up some big numbers. This particular game, like I just found the ball in in places that just came easy, I guess, in terms of like the ball spills out to the three-point line and I was I nailed it. So I hit I hit five threes that game, which sort of got everything rolling. And then once you once you're feeling it, you're feeling it. And then I was hitting some pretty crazy sort of shots, like everything was going in, right? And I think I had something like 35 at the end of regulation, uh, but it was all tied up. And so I, first overtime, was uh, able to put a few more on the board and then we got to second overtime. So that helps when you play 48 minutes, uh, uh, what was it, 50 minutes instead of 40. But, uh, you know, it was still still a tough thing to do. But the five, I think it was like five from five threes or something helped. Uh, and then, yeah, just, just doing work on the inside. A lot of, I played the five at, uh, at college. So I was able to, um, I was a bit heavier too, a bit stronger in that year. And, uh, yeah, just able to to get positioning and, and get that hook shot off and, and just be a bit crafty around the hoop a bit. But no, it was an awesome game. And the way that that game ended was like about three and a half seconds left, right? They had the inbound from the baseline. This dude took it coast to coast, weaved in and out within like three and a half seconds. I, I can't remember who it was. It wasn't, I don't think he went on to anything big, but he, he got this kind of floater off in the last second and, and they got the win by um, uh, one or two, I think, oh, by one. Uh, but we, so we lose the game, but man huge amount of interest after that game from all different angles coach was pretty proud of of that performance i was just kind of like bloody hell what happened (laughs) (laughs) what just happened so you know we we got sort of rolling that sophomore year really sort of set up a really um uh slick uh, junior year so that junior year the third my third year we had it all rolling we had a 20 something like a 22 or 23 win season like it was in the it was in the 20s and it was solid like it was it might have even been 25 win season out of the 28 games that we played we were uh, I think we even had a ranking for for a stage there but won our conference tournament the CAA the Colonial Athletic Conference which is they're not in it in that one anymore they're actually upgraded now um and we we played Virginia Commonwealth University so there, there was some uh Big names from a VCU that went on as well. Um, I can't remember what there, which ones it was, but that game where we played in the in the grand final for the conference championship was in at, at Virginia at the Capitol, and it was something like 20,000 20, people there in this massive stadium as well. So it was a there was a oh, it was such an awesome tournament. We were just so pumped. Obviously, afterwards, cut the net down. Um, you know, we, we, we owned the town for, for a good while after that, but, um, yeah, really good memories. And you know what? And then the, when at the big dance for March madness, we, we lost to Michigan state, right. But not by much. And we nearly, if we'd beaten Michigan state in round one of that tournament, uh, in 2004, the next matchup would have been against another lower seed that had an upset. So there was a chance that if we took care of Michigan State, I think we only we lost only by uh, a few, or, or it might have blown out to six or seven after free throws in the end. But 
we we had them we had them on uh, with their backs against the wall and if we would have won that i would have guaranteed we would have won at like a second round as well which oh, just would have been crazy but that that experience of going to march madness um going to um i forget where the where the actual those finals uh sorry that first round was played it was it was somewhere north uh almost want to say in in new york somewhere it was it was incredible the the it felt like just like a uh like a rock star sort of uh, treatment with the buses, the security, the the cameras, the everything. It was just, it was another level. Much madness over in the US is something else. If you've ever been over there, uh, it's just incredible to see. I'm trying to think, would Jason Richardson have been on that team or was that a bit late for him maybe? I'm trying to think when he would have been drafted. Yeah, uh, that Michigan State team from 2004, um, I think would be the one, to 2004 to 2005. I think that would be the the one for Stu to to um to lock in because there was some names on there. The big redhead dude, I think as well, was on that Michigan State team. He he went on for a bit. Um, the, but... there's, a, there's a there's a few guys. Al, you had Shannon Brown was on that team. Yeah, uh, yeah, Shannon yeah, Brown. Yeah, Alan Anderson was on there. He he played. Yeah. Um, Maurice Ager played. Paul Davis. Maurice Ager. Ager was the one. Ager was the one. He was he was built like uh, a tank. Uh, and he he could do he could do some crazy stuff. Um, so he was taken over that game as well. But but we we were matching him, man. Like we were matching him, and, and I think it was a three point game until we had to just foul and put him on the free throw line. But they they were worried. Um, they were they were pretty nervous uh, to get that get that win. But um, so yeah, it was it was close. It was close, and that that's where we were. And so obviously after you finish college, there's, you know, the world is your oyster. There's a few different opportunities. So the first thing obviously um, that we wanted to talk about was the 2006 Orlando Magic Summer League team. And so you played with some incredible players, guys like Marcin Gortat, uh, the current Lakers head coach in Darvin Ham was there. Uh, JJ Redick would have been starting off with the Magic at that stage. So, you know, what was that like going through that Summer League? You know, we get to see a little bit of it on ESPN, but you don't really hear too many stories. So yeah, what's that all like? Yeah, so signed with an agent, uh, went with Octagon. They had Rudy Gay um, and a few other names. And then we all got together in Washington, D.C. for a training sort of a couple of weeks. Uh, just something that, that they do in the lead up to draft night and all that and Summer League. So then once Summer League hits and we land the one for Orlando, then we're down, in, we're down there in, in Orlando getting ready for that. Uh, and we have a, a training camp, right? Two or three days of training before the first um, bunch of games. Uh, anyway, Darwin was um he was playing and I was guarding him in the post and he did this spin move and he just absolutely poleaxed me with the elbow right in the eye socket and it cut my eyebrow like just absolutely bleeding everywhere, right? Um and the the colours of Orlando Magic are blue, right? But they actually looked green, like my vision had sort of blurred and it was like the color i remember blue had turned to this turquoise green Yikes. and i was just staggering it back right and it was just off a post move that he'd spun and, and just collected me i must have put my my head in the bread basket and just absolutely took one but then i kind of got stitched up and and able to come back to training later that day and i was and i was shooting the lights out i was it was an awesome training and i had this massive sort of bruised black eye but i was still um getting uh buckets and i was just like i was like oh mate this is awesome so it was a really cool couple of days i made made my first grant my first g of cash i was like per diem 
And I remember fanning it out and taking a photo. And I've got this photo <laughs> of just like looking badass with my black eye and like my my thousand um, dollars US cash just like in front of me, like like a, like a, a set of cards, you know. And so anyway, once the games rolled around, there was five games. I played limited minutes, um, you know, probably they were rotating through players, probably didn't have a great sort of tournament, but uh, it was still pretty cool. JJ Reddick was, had a sort of a back injury at that time, so he wasn't actually playing much. Gortak was actually a, a big, uh, he was he was coming and going with different individual trainings, but it's cool. Like you see these guys that are no no names yet, like they're no name, but they're trying. And then you hear later that they made it. Um, we had the, the shooter for Gonzaga. He was on the, he was around that. Oh, tournament Adam Morrison. Well. Adam Morrison. Yeah, yeah, Morrison. Yeah, yeah. He, he was playing in that tournament as well. He, he was a weird, <laughs> he's a funny guy. Um, and, you know, just, just these players that, you know, it was really cool. Like all the big names that you've been watching on TV are all of a sudden together. And then you're, you're all trying to make it work. We had one guy on our team that ended up um, being like uh, poached by another team. Um, so he's like, see you guys, I'm out, you know, like he's, he's on the next level. Everyone's like, oh, wow. Like, you know, let's, if you have a good performance, you might get picked up by another team. So, you know, for actual a contract or, or at least for veteran camp. So yeah, really cool experience, but a bit sort of fleeting, I guess. I knew I had to, unless you're dropping some serious numbers, you, you're probably going on the road to Europe. So from there, uh, oh, it was a it was a really nerve nerve wracking wait because after that would have been around June or July that summer league, and then it wasn't until September that I actually picked up a contract for Europe. So it just took forever. I remember, and Michelle's getting a bit worried. She's like, "What's going on? Like, what are we doing?" You know, and she's got not much to do because we're just in limbo. Um, so it's one of those things you just go, "Oh, she probably should have come back to Australia and just refreshed and caught up with the family while I was waiting for." contract because then by the time we actually got to spain it was kind of like yeah it was really it was actually really hard because um you know it wasn't a smooth process at all it was a lot of uncertainty a lot of limbo a lot of a lot of everything until finally we get there so it was yeah it's a bit of a rough trot really i guess in that space where you don't know where you're gonna live you don't know how much you're gonna get paid i didn't get paid a whole lot in spain it was you know foot in the door so yeah you just got to land and no, oh, we did. We did in the end. After sort of six months, we were starting to pick up a lot of the, the lingo. Like I, I really enjoyed it, but I was submersed in it every day. Uh, probably a bit harder for Michelle, but uh, I had sort of sixteen and seven. So I, I was cooking on the court and in Leb Gold or, or second division in Spain. It was a chance for a good sort of upgrade the following year. But then the Wildcats came calling, and actually same as Ken's Taipans actually came calling at the same time. And I went with Scotty Fisher and the Cats and. Then I was um, signing a two-year deal in 2007 to 2009. So um, that's sort of the that's sort of the the link, I guess, in between college, Europe, and then to the Wildcats. Uh, and then yeah, two years there and a couple of changes of coaches and the league actually wanted to fold. The NBL said, "Oh, let's take a year off." And I was like, "That sounds like death to me." <laughs> like you know, <laughs> this is 2009. Let's take 2009, 2010 off, and then let's reset as a league. This is the problem when you have a government-run basketball Australia running a uh, corporate business, uh, a league. You know, there was, there was no sort of consideration for players and, and financial sort of contracts and things. It was like, oh, it would have been absolute like detriment to the whole league. So kind of having that and having momentum in Europe in 2009, at the end of the Wildcats year, I was like, I'm going to have to take some momentum in Europe and, and 
get this thing going because if the league folds and I don't have a job, like that's <laughs> you don't have a job, no no income or anything. So I was like, well, I might be one of the lucky ones that actually has a bit of standing in Europe to kind of go back. So after that, those two years in Wildcats, I signed a deal back in Spain, and the league end up ends up going ahead. Rob Beveridge ends up pulling in a, a group of guys, including Damian Martin and Galen Young and Luke Schencher and, you know, had the Sean Reddish there still and they end up winning the championship. <laughs> so you we, leave, were leave we were us. so gutted for you, mate, when that happened. Oh, and we <laughs> were gutted when you left too. But we'll, we'll, but we'll just take a step back if I if I can, just for a sec, yeah. before we continue with the NBL stuff. What's it like playing in Europe and, and how kind of crazy is it? Because you hear stories of people getting pelted with batteries and crowds going nuts. And one thing that yeah. Shuey and I actually haven't covered on the podcast for a number of reasons, timing and whatnot, was the Dante Exum, the horrible Dante Exum situation yeah. with yeah. Uh, Yavasuli. I don't know how you say his name, the former NBA player. Like, how intimidating is it playing over there? It's It's just poles apart from what you experience here, isn't it? Oh, a hundred percent. Like if you were to liken it to something, I guess, like you would say that the crowd in Australia is very respectful, very reserved in Europe. It's like wild and crazy and loud. So horns going off the whole time, like the whole game, you're like, I can't hear a thing. And the thing was, we were at the Canary Islands one time and I said to my other import there, I was like, Zach, what's this guy doing over here? He looks like he's wiring up something. He wired up three or four megaphone like uh, speakers to his one. Eh, 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 eh. So now it's, in, <laughs> now it's in surround sound and it's just that one button. So like he's, we're doing a, you know, warm up shoot around. He's warming up his, his section over there, front row. And then go to shoot a free throw. I was like, eh, 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 eh. it's just like, oh my gosh. And then they're, they're going off the whole time. So it's a big culture over there of just going nuts in the stands. And it's like your chance to just let your hair down and just be absolutely filthy and feral. There wasn't any, um, what do you call it? The, the lighter things going off, the Please. flares. Oh yeah, uh, it's probably more for your soccer stadiums, but it, it does get wild. It does get pretty crazy, and and then you at halftime you come back out of the locker room and this big smoky haze across the whole court, and everyone's <laughs> been smoking at halftime. And yeah, they went to the foyer, but the foyer is connected to the stadium, which then is connected to the outdoor. So that smoke has to go from the foyer through the stadium, then find the window. So it's like, it's just a smoky, noisy, crazy sort of haze. You know, it's something else. It's really cool. I always thought, you know, Europe would be a great sort of place to play. And you're in these towns with these cobblestone things with a thousand year old history with the town and the stories and everything like that. So it's, um, it's pretty cool. And to sort of have a job in that, place and be a local um, that's when you sort of get that enriching sort of culture experience uh, which I'm really grateful for because it was uh, was certainly a lot of fun uh, in Gandia on that Mediterranean side for the first year near Valencia and then um, in Vigo which is near the Portuguese uh, Oporto border northwest uh, in Spain for my second year so yeah we, we got to do some cool stuff on the weekend go to go to Oporto go to Madrid go to all these places Barcelona um, and, and have a pretty cool sort of weekend getaway after a game of basketball. Couldn't ask for much more. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting you say that because I was actually having a look before. My wife and I have been lucky enough to get to Valencia. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous city. Oh, cool. Didn't actually get a chance to get across to uh, to the west, unfortunately, but not too far away from the Santiago de Compostela. So did you get to do any of the, any of the walk over there? Yeah, in Santiago? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we got, yeah, we got down there... Um, 
there's a whole bunch of um, there's a big thing at Easter as well down that way and um we, we got to a few sort of festival like cultural type festival type things like that that the teammates were going to as well and actually one of the ones one of the festivals was a festival of um fire or fires or something and what they do is they have these massive floats like a big sort of parade mardi gras thing with these massive structures um i don't know if it's like paper mache or something massive right but then at the end of the parade the whole point is you set your thing on fire. <laughs> so, you know, you're thinking, oh, this is a pretty, you know, um, subdued sort of uh, festival for Spain. And then, and then all the lighters come out and the, the petrol, and then they light up their things. They're like, ah, that makes more sense. You know, firecrackers <laughs> going off, fire in the streets, like kids holding firecrackers that are just about to blow off their fingers. And they just, they release them just in time. And the mum and dad sort of like, oh, little Johnny, don't, you got to be careful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably a bit more Italian, but it's danger. It's it's like you're gonna lose a limb here if you know. I just couldn't believe it. Like just the what's let go. You know, it's as just part of the culture. You know, it's just crazy. And these these um setups where these firecracker type things were all like almost hanging from wires, almost like a, a big massive clothesline with all these things hanging down. Like, oh, what's that there? And someone goes, oh, that's the um the fireworks show, and it goes like bang, 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 and then smoke just starts like fanging out, and then the whole area you can't see in front of you because this this firecracker show is just like smoked out the entire um sort of area in the in the square, you know, in the thing. So it's just it's some pretty cool experiences that the players were like, oh, we're going to here this weekend. I was like, why are you doing that? Oh, you just got to come. I was like, all right, we're doing it. Didn't get to do the running with the bulls, um, but that's probably uh, my call. I didn't didn't want to go to that. Didn't go to the tomato festival. That would have been a bit better, but um, no, it was, it was it was pretty nuts. It was pretty nuts, and just one of those experiences where you can't buy that kind of thing. And so I was really really grateful to be able to play. I guess we'll go back to the to the MBL stuff. So as I said, we were kind of gutted when you left, and fair enough, yeah. you went on to greener pastures. And you mentioned also when you were talking about the recruitment. If I'm not mistaken, Daniel Joyce, no, Daniel's the son, isn't it? Uh, Brennan. Uh, Brennan. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. Brennan Joyce at Illawarra at the time tried to get you across as well, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, so so before, you mean the Wildcats? Yeah, and I guess out of college, I think it was. when. Yeah, Joyce... yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so yeah, Brennan Joyce was knocking. I had Alan Black, who I trained with at the Wildcats as well, briefly uh, before AIS. So I had a connection with him. He was at the Cairns Taipans at the time. Scotty Fisher, obviously, at the Cats. Um, you know, there's a few teams there. And New Zealand as well. New Zealand was sort of uh, calling as well. But um, I just sort of thought, I really looked up to Scotty Fisher. Um, and I thought it would be great to come home for a bit. So that that sort of drew me in. And I was talking with Vlahov because uh, he was in the admin side, I guess, the general manager side of things. So he was... He was in there as well, and I I loved watching Blahoff play. Um, and then you know all that sort of stuff kind of brought me home. I guess uh, coming home to Perth, setting up with our sort of first house, um, having a kid as well. We, we were just ready to come home. I think after a good couple of years away, because Michelle came. We got married between my third and fourth year at college. Michelle came over for my fourth year, and then we all both went to Spain. So we'd been away for a good couple of years. We were probably ready to come home. So yeah, it's sort of. It, it was great. It was really good. It wasn't at the the Perth Arena. Like, it was obviously at Challenge Stadium, and they did the best they could with that sort of stadium. But then a couple of years later, when that Perth Arena kind of lands on their lap, like, that just that was a massive game changer for the Wildcats that 
didn't quite see that coming because we didn't know where that stadium was going to come and replace that entertainment center, which we all love growing up, you know, in that yep. 6,000 seat stadium right in the center of town, grab your McDonald's on the way in on the train. You know, we all remember that growing up, uh, going to those, see those games. But yeah, the big stadium for Perth was massive. But yeah, I was obviously on the move. Uh, from Spain, because that second to- year in, in Spain, um, it wasn't going to work out where, you know, we could be in, in Europe as a family. I think Mish really preferred uh, Australia or New Zealand or something like that, where she could get a job and work as well and, and fulfill her career. So we, we sort of, I guess, compromised in terms of coming back to Australia. And the options there at the time was um, Cairns Taipans or um, New Zealand Breakers. So... Mick Downer, who was the assistant coach at Cairns Taipans, he was also the assistant coach um, in the second year at Wildcats. So we knew, um, had a connection there. Uh, and it's funny, like you, you players that throw in the towel or, or burn the bridges of their team based on something and leave, you know, if they burn that bridge, you don't know who your next employer is going to be. Like the, the coaches move around so much. You know, you got to be really professional with how you sort of conduct yourself because they could be at the next team that you need to, you need to get a job. <laughs> and in this situation, like Mick had moved to Cairns and he he put in a word for coach and then coach was calling me and then we're, we're establishing contact again, you know. So it was really great that we had that connection and then really happy to, to land in Cairns in, in the tropics. Um, you know, hadn't really been up here much at all. Uh, but then once I landed, I thought, oh man, this, this place is actually, this place is different. Uh, I think it's going to be something that we might stay for a while uh, if the contracts permit. But yeah, landed here in 2010 and, um, you know, tried to talk a big game when I first arrived. And I thought we had a pretty good team and thought we could get to the playoffs and we did. And, um, you know, we, we ended up going to the grand final. Um, so you had a really good start to coming back to Australia, I guess, and just knew it was the right place from there. What's it like falling just short, making that grand final and then falling ever so short at the final hurdle? Well, no one expected us to do it in 2010-11. And we had a team that wasn't as highly sort of touted, I guess, um, on paper. But we we kept notching wins and we kept getting good scalps. We played Townsville in a three-game series in the semis uh, and they had the home court advantage. So... We lost in overtime in Townsville. We thought, man, we're actually rattling the cage here. Like, we've we've got a chance here. And then they kind of uh, put the cue in the rack in game two. And I think to rest a few players, like they had Pete Crawford and all that. Um, when we went back to Townsville, uh, this is Trevor Gleeson, by the way, coaching at the helm. We towed him up and got the win and, and got some momentum rolling into the grand final against uh, Andre Lamanis's New Zealand Breakers. Uh, who had um, Penny? They had uh, actually no, no, they didn't have Penny that year. I don't think they had a pretty good, pretty good squad. Um, CJ Bruton was um, a big, big one for New Zealand. That team was pretty tough, um, and we were obviously the the second seed. Um, so you know we had our backs against the wall, and it's only a three game series. You get no time to make a mistake because it's gone. The five-game series just gives you that one breather where you got a chance to settle into those grand final nerves. But at the end of the day, like we shouldn't have been there, but we were, and we knew that we had um, some really good chemistry to build on. But the following year, a lot of those players were poached, uh, and we didn't sort of we weren't able to retain the good players. 
and that sort of really killed a lot of the momentum for those following years, which I'm probably a little bit dark on, if I'm honest, because they didn't fight to keep the players. They didn't they didn't have the, the negotiating skill to keep them on side because they didn't leave for very much difference in terms of money. I'm talking about Allende, Ubaka, Ron Dorsey, you know, and uh, Daniel Dillon. These guys, we, we formed chemistry in, in a very short space of time and then they ended up going to Melbourne um, Tigers for not, not much different but they were they just left with such a sour taste in their mouth after the negotiating process um and then long story short you know taipans we, we lose momentum so it's a, it's a similar story that seems to repeat itself and it's probably no different to this coming year in the modern day but a lower budget sort of team has to sometimes make tougher calls and and know their niche, and I guess they thought the the niche is trying to find diamonds in the rough at a at the cheaper price uh, and get lucky by having good talent spotted by a good set of uh, coaching eyes that can pull those diamonds out of the rough and develop. So that that's sort of that money ball mentality where you can get value for money. There's some some really interesting stuff to talk about with the history of the Taipans. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about the upcoming season and some of the challenges. Yes, that the time is escaping, has. isn't it? <laughs> we, we did yes, want to just sorry. quickly post, because obviously you spent a lot of time at the Taipans. You were there from, what, 2010 to 2019 when you retired from the league. Yeah. What is your all-time Taipans 5? All-time Taipans 5. And you had to fill the positions or just all-time sort of... Do, do you know what? I'll let you decide how you want to play that. Yeah. If you want to just put... Well, Five centers or whatever, you can go nuts. Absolutely. Well, I mean, at the helm, top player that I've ever played against uh, with, sorry, is Scotty Wilberkin. So Scotty Wilberkin out of Florida, Gators, they uh, made it to top four in the in the March Madness um, the year before in um, 2013-14, I think. And then Coach Fern calls me into the office and says, oh, we might have this player that we're thinking about getting. And I'm like, oh yeah, there goes his name, Scott Wilberkin. I'm like, okay, what's 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 up? What's wrong? So, well, he's got a bit of a rap sheet. So if a player has got a few discretions at college, um, they, it goes on their rap sheet, you know, the, the list of all their their things that they get in trouble for. And this, this rap sheet was fairly extensive. <laughs> um, so it meant no NBA teams wanted him because of the rap sheet. But guess who wanted him? We wanted him. The Cairns Taipans will take a crack at that. <laughs> and uh, so when you have a price that, you know, their their um, agents are willing to sort of work with, and, and he, we end up getting this guy called Scott Wilberkin. So this dude is the fastest dude I've ever seen with the ball. And he's also the fastest. So, so straight up and down uh, and also laterally. So defensively. He could. He was like. Uh, he could salsa around the bloody uh, on-ball screens and things. Like he would get through a screen without breaking speed, and he would maneuver around it and then re-engage and then be back in front of his player. So he he could just move around the court. He was strong. He had all the handles in the world. And we, as soon as we saw him, like bloody hell, like this is going to be a year, like 2014-15, this is going to be a heck of a year if Scott Wilberkin's doing his thing. And what happened in the preseason tournament against five-time all-defensive player Damian Martin, he crosses him up and just discards him like it's nothing and drains a, a 10-footer um, in space and then just trots back down the other end of the floor as, like, as if, like, who's this guy? It's like, oh, that's oh that's just Damian Martin, the defensive player of the year, um, five <laughs> times in a row. Oh, sweet. Yeah, he's like... Pfft. 
he just kind of piffs and sort of just you know oh, and i just looked at cameron trigard next to me i was like geez trig like this is did you see that he's like i saw it i saw it Laos. i saw it i was like are we having a year this year trig he's like we're having a year i was like all right let's do it <laughs> let's, let's do it so scotty wilbin gets my number one uh stew because after that year this is where the ball doesn't lie right the contracts don't lie after that year you could join the Europe for 50 grand a month. And then after that, 1.5 mil euro per year. He did, he was a local because he married a local girl in Turkish league, but he was very quickly on to the next level and too small for NBA. He was with the NBA, um, uh, Philadelphia 76ers. They just stockpiled five point guards, all of pretty similar quality. Um, but he, so he was, he was with NBA teams, but he was never going to get a rotation in with, with four other guys ahead of him. So his niche was ended up being in Europe, uh, upper level um, in that Euroleague for a long time. So Scotty Wilbekin, number one. Number two, same team, Tory Craig. Tory Craig is still in the NBA now, of course. Just etched a name for himself, etched a position as a defensive sort of 3 and D kind of guy. Um, he can knock down that, that range, but he's got that athleticism to, to uh, change shots at the rim. He, this is like... How do you describe Tory Craig? He's like a, a dog in the backyard, right? And he's just lanky and, and just galloping around the backyard looking for his biscuit. Like just this dog going around, 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 around. Like, where's Tory? Oh, he's over there. Oh, Tory over here. <laughs> you know, okay, cool. Go get it. Go get the ball. Go get it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Off you go and go get it. Hey, go go block that guy over there. Oh, yeah, cool. Go block him, you know. Just this dude is just the happiest dude. He's just happy-go-lucky. It was great to be around. And, he, you know, he changed our team for that year. He was with Brisbane Bullets next year, got into all-defensive team. Just a great dude that that could – he gave, so he was coming off the bench for 17 points a game when, when he joined us. And then I said to Trig, Trig, did you see that? He's like, yeah, I saw that too. <laughs> I was like, so we've got Scotty Wilbrick in there. He's like, yeah, yeah. And we've got Tory Craig for 17 points a game there coming off the bench. He's like, yeah, I said, Trig. Like we got a game, we got a we got a season here, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. So that was a good one. Uh, next one, I'll, I'll say Ron Dorsey. So this is 2010 Taipans. This is our three man. Um, he shot this game tying shot to put us into a, another overtime in our grand final best of three game series against uh, New Zealand. So they thought they had it won. This is game two. Uh, Ron Dorsey shoots, grabs it an inbound pass, and um, with time fading out, three, two. One, he managed to get the ball down the floor to about a good sort of meter and a half, two meters off the three-point line on the 45. Sort of shot fakes. CJ Bruton goes in front. Next defender's coming in as well. And so he's able to get the shot off and, and just drains it. And Ayinde Ubaka just like shirt fronts him with like a massive grin on his face. Dorsey's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> um, uh, Steve Carfin on the, the things like, oh my goodness. So like that sends it into another overtime or the first overtime, and then we we get the next, we get the game done to then send it into game three. So it was a massive moment, and he was he was just solid like that. Like he he was just so calm and just every time down the floor, like he just had it. He just owned his spot. Um, he just did his things, and you know he wasn't a loud vocal kind of guy, but he was a guy that you wanted to follow into the trenches. So yeah, it was it was really good. It was great. Um, we just saw that shot. Like, actually, we we found the uh, the YouTube footage of him hitting not just the three oh, to tie the game, but the three before it to cut it to a one point game. Oh, Incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, and he, he's got some great memories with that, and we're always bringing up every time we catch up. 
I think if I go if I go a big, this guy was also on that 2014-15 team, but he's a bit of an unsung hero. But Matty Burston, Matty Burston, uh, it's got to be Burston. Oh, we loved him as Cats fans. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, like he might not be flashy, but man, he's a, such a stat stuffer and un, unassuming sort of guy that you, he's a really tough cover. He he's a good six eleven frame, big unit, and uh, his ankle's the size of a knee. But um, he he could really uh, help the team. His hands were the the quickest hands in the league in terms of being able to catch sort of wayward passes from guards, whatever. He he'd vacuum it in and just finish. So you know, defensively as well, um, he's a big frame. So he you know, in limited time, he would be still be able to give you twelve and ten, uh, and it's just a crucial piece uh, where you needed those kind of guys on on the squad. Um, so those four, Scott Wilberkin, Tory Craig, Ron Dorsey, Matt Burston, if I have to chuck a few other names in there, like obviously my, my mate Trigg, uh, Cameron Trigar was a uh, just an offensive weapon that you could put in the game and he'd give you 60% from two-point land. So as a big, you know, 50% is great. Uh, if, you, if you're really looking at a possession game, you know, you're trying to get it to your most effective scorers. So Trigg at 60%, every time he got the ball off, doesn't matter whether it went in or not. Every time he shot it, it's going to be about a 60% finish. That's worth 1.2 points per possession. Over 100 possession game, you know, 120. A 50% shooter, obviously 100 points if you do the math. So it's the same as a 40% three-point shooter uh, worth 1.2 points every time a good shooter like Steph Curry uh, will get it off. That's worth 1.2 points per time every time you get it off. So 40% shooter. So Trigg was one of those offensive weapons that you, you just kind of mind boggle because he always shoots it super flat. He had this spin move that just put people into submission uh, and you you know it's coming, but you just can't get out of a spin circle <laughs> when someone's in the post and gets you locked up. So like Trigg, Trigg was a go-to kind of guy that, that could just put the points on the board, get the job done, and then he'd often get sort of subbed out or whatever, but his job was uh, just piling it on and it just put us in a, in a game winning position, um, you know, for, for the defensive sort of units to come in. But um, yeah, I mean, I, probably most of those guys are on the, are on that 2014, 15 team. Um, and I probably biased towards that, that group, but that group, I guess also had the chemistry, um, which it's just hard to, it's hard to fake it, it, Yeah. It's got to be genuine. You've got to have each other's backs. Um, got to be trust there. Uh, just a great, great squad. Oh, it was an incredible squad. I mean, you think about the shooters, Cam Glidden and Stephen Way. You had Sean Bruce, young Nathan Sobey. Well, a lot of those guys would have been young I, at that time. I but... didn't realise Nathan Sobey was on that side Yeah, that's well. started with Adelaide, yeah. So, yeah, good start. Yeah, so, so, so Nathan Sobey is a classic one where if the coach-player relationship doesn't marry up, and I'm not talking like they fought, but the philosophies of Coach Fern was a defensive-minded player, uh, defensive-minded coach that wanted discipline. Sobey wanted pure offensive like freedom and Fern would restrict that because he wanted shot clock to be used up and you know essentially a slightly boring style of play but it was a disciplined one and a strategy that sort of vacuumed out the easy sort of uh, quick shots so teams would get frustrated when the scores were lower than normal so they'd sort of panic but defensively if you're screwing down the um the the hatches and uh, you know have that philosophy. Then you have got to have players that buy in. Once once Sobi went to um, Adelaide, then it totally opened up his his whole game with Joey Wright. 
uh, at Adelaide, that was like purely offensive, the total opposite to Fern's strategy. And he was able to just flourish because he had speed in straight lines, like speed and and buckets and dunks, just totally suited that coach's style. So he was all right with us. And, you know, they, they wanted to keep him, but he was drawn to that that new style. Well, Alex, thank you so much. You've been super generous with your time, as you always are. Time just goes so quick. No, no, yeah, sorry, I talk, didn't get talking a bit too much. Sorry, it was gone a bit too long. <laughs> no, not at all. No, we love it. We, we can't wait to have a beer with you in person whenever that may be, Christmas time, or who knows when that will be, but we can't wait for that. We, we'd love for you to perhaps plug your basketball clinics you've been doing and any other plugs or any other shout-outs you want to give. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, a bit of a giving back thing. Um, so I run Loughton 40 Hoops uh, and uh, I, I do go to a couple of schools every term. We do a six-week basketball program and it's really about a groundswell of getting kids excited about playing hoops. So one of the schools per term is a like a lower socioeconomic um, school and that's a free program because I've got a few sponsors on board um, and the other one is like a paid program, so user pay. Um, sort of thing and uh, yeah we, we have a lot of fun and and parents just want their kids to get excited about a sport and uh, and I I know I deliver it you know with a bit of fun and a bit of flair and always have that competition element to it so by week four of a six-week program uh, we're playing full court games uh, these are brand new kids that haven't played before so I'm really really proud of that and uh, we give them all a ball a drink bottle um, you know t-shirt and um, and uh, just some info on where to sign up for a real basketball season on, on the real court so yeah, a lot of fun, a lot of energy from the kids. But yeah, it's a good, just a good thing that keeps me connected and uh, give back a bit. So um, slatton40hoops.com. Yeah, lo- love everyone to check it out. Obviously, if you're in, if you're in the Cairns area, if you're not at your school, let me know. Let's get there and get there to your school. Bloody oath, we'll get those details and we'll pop them in the description of this episode as well. Yeah, no, good so great you. to see you know, someone who's had so much given to them by the game to, to be able to give that back and and yeah, really appreciate you, the grassroots. I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun. I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Yeah, and just kind of just keeps you grounded a bit. You know, the kids are a great value, good energy, like I said. And, um, and and when you see one that goes, you know, I'm so excited and the parents go, oh, they, they just want to play more, like actually join a team now. I'm like, oh, that's great because that's the whole point of it. Someone that's found a sport that they're finally happy to, to play. The parents are just so relieved. <laughs> Uh, that they're enjoying it and I said well the other thing is it's obviously indoors air conditioned like you've chosen the right sports <laughs> <All good. laughs> and I dare say with Victor Wembanyama hitting the NBA basketball participation and excitement is only going to go up so it's it's an exciting time to be involved in basketball isn't it yeah and and obviously NBA uh, finals just around the corner for uh, Denver and Miami so I'm looking forward to that and great time for hoops love it who's your tip um, oh, it's tough. I'd love to see Denver get it. You know, never, never won one in their history. So how good would that be for uh, Djokovic to be able to claim an NBA championship? I do like Jimmy Butler though. He's uh, he's got he's got the stuff. So happy for either one, but I'm going for Denver. Amen. Thanks so much again, Matt. You're a bloody legend. Uh, we wish you all the best, and we look forward to the next time we speak to you. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Catch ya. All right, Stewie. You know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, mate, as a vertically challenged individual, I think early on I knew that Alex was destined for some greatness. He was always head and shoulders above all of us. I reckon year eight we knew he was destined for at least the NBL. Yeah. Yeah. Just an incredible player. An incredible guy as well. Oh, 
fantastic, yeah. bloody legend. Very fortunate to have grown up and, and spent some time with. And yeah, just a, as I say, great guy. Lot, lots of really great in-depth answers as well. We love those. Oh, we certainly do. No, he had a great yarn, lots of interesting facts, lots of interesting stories as well. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes. 45. <laughs> oh, come on, I've got to.